Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Anderson. In part one of a two-part series, this episode features content regarding steps to take when monitoring and treating patients co-infected with hepatitis B and hepatitis Delta. During this podcast, Dr. Heiner Wiedemeyer, Professor and Chairman in the Department of Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Endocrinology at Hanover Medical School in Hanover, Germany, and Dr. Chihan Yurayden, Professor and Chief in the Department of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Koch University Medical School in Istanbul, Turkey, discuss the importance of continuing to monitor and treat hepatitis B in patients co-infected with hepatitis Delta. For more information about Dr. Wiedemeyer and Dr. Yurdaiden, and for a link to the full online educational program, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now, let's get started and hear what Dr. Wiedemeyer and Dr. Yurdaiden have to say about steps to take in a patient with hepatitis B who is also found to be infected with hepatitis Delta. My name is Heiner Wedemeyer. I have the privilege to chair the Department of Gastroenterology, Hepatology and Endocrinology at Hanover Medical School. And we will have uh, a conversation about hepatitis D, Delta virus infection, together with Chihan Yudaidi. And Chihan, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Chihan Yudaiden. I'm the chair of the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Koch University in Istanbul. And I'm happy to talk to you about Delta with my dear friend, Heiner. Chian, we're talking about Delta. So you have been working on Delta for two decades. So is Delta still a problem in Turkey? What kind of patients do you still see? Well, I moved from Ankara to Istanbul. And in Istanbul, Delta appears to be a problem among immigrants to Istanbul. I've seen a lot of patients of Delta in Istanbul, which I was not expecting, but they are from countries from Central Asia, for example, from neighboring countries such as Georgia, Moldova, and they are patients. Of course, they know that I'm dealing with Delta hepatitis, so I somehow serve as a magnet for Delta patients. It's pretty much the same thing in Germany. So we are also, let's say, a Delta center in Hanover. Uh, But my patients, the far majority also was not born in Germany. And uh, we distinguish here between three groups of patients. The one is immigrants from the former Soviet Union, and some countries are overlapping. You mentioned Central Asia, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan. Then the second group is actually patients born in, for example, Eastern Turkey or in Syria. And the third group of patients are are drug addicts, so former German drug addicts who have been infected. So these are basically the the three types of patients we we see in Germany. Yes, and I I think the immigrant population is a big issue, in especially in Western Europe. IV drug users are less of a problem nowadays, but the immigrant population in in size is is a much bigger group. Immigration, of course, is, is coming from poor countries to rich countries. So that affects Delta prevalence in those countries. And that's a, an issue also when we have to deal with Delta patients, because you have to have to take these cultural issues and to take this into account. So that's the first thing is language. Obviously, if you have to explain a disease, you have to consider uh, language issues. You have to consider education. 
you have to consider cultural problems maybe. So if you have uh, a young woman born in a different culture and now she has been exposed to a completely different health system, these are barriers which we in our daily life frequently underestimate and require special attention. Yes. One thing I want to mention is we have a lot of people coming from Syria. And among these Syrians, they all supposedly have childhood vaccination, I mean, universal infant vaccination against hepatitis B. But there was war. And war is a huge barrier against reasonable health infrastructure. And therefore, they did a study in, in eastern Turkey with among the Syrian refugees, among patients, who, among people who are less than 18 years old, so pediatric population. And they found the hepatitis B prevalence of more than 4%. So that's an issue. It is important that Western countries consider to have hepatitis B screening for immigrants. And we found also if they can also be checked, of course, for Delta. Let's touch first of all the topics, uh, natural history and diagnosis. So my, my first question to you is, for 20 years, we have been telling the liver community, the infectious diseases community, that hepatitis D virus infection is the most severe form of viral hepatitis, frequently leading to liver cirrhosis, to a higher risk to develop liver cancer, a major cause for liver transplantation. That's, let's say, we wrote it that often, and we believe that this is true. But is it always the case? Is, in your hands, an HDV infection always a deadly Liver disease, are there also benign courses? Uh, do you see that, that the Delta patients are younger than the hepatitis B mono-infected patients? So what is your clinical impression on the burden of hepatitis D virus infection? Okay, Delta hepatitis continues to be the most severe form of viral hepatitis, but with a twist. <laughs> and the twist is that there are some patients who have less severe disease. This is probably not unexpected because when we go back, when the disease was most severe, where we had a lot of acute delta hepatitis, most of them became pulmonary hepatitis, which we don't see such case anymore. The issue was that these were, first of all, E-antigen positive chronic hepatitis B patients. And on top of that came delta. So there was... First of all, Delta was much more frequent. There was a rapid circulation of Delta virus in the community. And this rapid circulation went on top of wild-type hepatitis B, E-antigen-positive chronic hepatitis B. That probably led to a more virulent strain of Delta virus, and we had some more severe cases of Delta hepatitis. We definitely see those very severe cases of Delta hepatitis less now. That you have delta hepatitis patients who went on to cirrhosis, decomposed liver failure in five years. That is no longer, we don't see this, this anymore. I mean, remember, in the past, we were mentioning that hepatocellular carcinoma, not very often seen in delta hepatitis because they die before they have the chance to develop HCC. I mean, this is probably, this was a right observation, yeah. but that has changed now. Yeah, but now we see this. And if I, I did, when I went on the round in this hospital this morning here, I have seen three patients who are, are waiting for liver transplantation for hepatitis delta, and two of those have liver cancer. So the issue that delta is not only causing 
uh, more rapid cirrhosis or risk for cirrhosis progression. I think that's quite clear. Uh, but liver cancer is something over the last three, four, five years, which I link now more often to Delta than in the than 10, 15 years ago. That is my impression. I don't know whether this is the same in Turkey. That's true. I also have the impression. In particular, if we compare to hepatitis B, you have hepatitis B patients who can develop cancer, but they all receive treatment for hepatitis B. You have Delta patients who may benefit from treatment, but there is no optimal treatment for Delta hepatitis. And the suboptimal treatment is given in an even more suboptimal way to patients. Mm -hmm. So there is the issue of Delta hepatitis prone to hepatocellular cancer. Somehow more out of the proportion of cancer would have been lower if proper treatment would, would have been given to patients. But yes. I think that's an important point. So Delta is a disease, and we will talk about this a little later, that is treatable, but we need to treat early enough. I think that's important. But maybe then let's let's now uh, move on and discuss uh, diagnosis and also surveillance. So in my educational talks, uh, which I give to, for example, GPs or gastroenterologists, I highlight only one single slide, and that is that every HBS antigen positive person should be uh, screened for anti-HDV. And if they remember this slide, I think I have done my job because everything that follows thereafter would be my job once a patient has been diagnosed anti-HDV positive. But uh, the problem in Germany is that this anti-HDV testing is uh, not, let's say, performed as a reflex test in HPS antigen-positive individuals. So frequently, delta diagnosis is still missed. And I know data that this is different from different European countries. In some countries, they are better. But my impression is that overall, in European countries, uh, there is still room for improvement that anti-HDV testing needs to be, let's say, better implemented and that simply uh, physicians of all disciplines need to be aware that Delta exists and that there is a very, very easy and simple antibody tests that can identify persons at risk. Exactly, exactly. I think it's not an excuse not to test for Delta because Delta is so rare. If I have a patient with chronic liver disease, I still test for serum iron, transferrin saturation, and ferritin. Similarly, we have very few cases of alpha-1 untrypsin deficiency. I similarly check every single patient with chronic liver disease for the presence of alpha. I mean, if I don't check for alpha-1 untrypsin, at least I do a protein electrophoresis where I can check for alpha-1 globulin levels. A simple, it's not an expensive test, it's a simple serological test. And does it always work? So are there, uh, there have been some discussion and we have been discussing if there's a cold delta in the absence of anti-HDV antibodies. So, or the other way around, are all assays that are available reliable or can we miss a delta patient with standard anti-HDV testing, in your opinion? We thought we have a perfect test. We don't miss any cases. But with recent publications, we now hear that we may miss some cases. But we shouldn't confuse people. 
we have a very, maybe not 100% reliable, but more than 95% reliable test, and we should test for Delta, for yeah. anti-HTV, not anti-HTV IgM, but simply anti-HTV IgG or total anti-HTV. Yeah. And if we found it positive, then we check for HTV RNA or send it to a gastroenterologist or infectious disease specialist, yeah. and that's important. Let me comment on this uh, subsequent um, diagnostic tool. So as Chihan mentioned, anti-HTV is, is a very good assay, and there are even now tools to have a fast track uh, or point of care test, uh, which will be developed. But then I think it's important to test for HTV RNA because, and that is really critical, not every anti-HTV positive patient is actually Uh, showing up with active replication and with active disease, as in hepatitis C, for example, where we have 20 to 40 percent of anti-HCV positive persons who are HCV RNA negative, we have a similar phenomenon in HDV infections. So there are patients who are anti-HDV positive and who are RNA undetectable. But there's a big difference to hepatitis C. A one-time point testing or negative HDV RNA test does not mean that in six months this patient is also HDV RNA negative. There are sometimes fluctuating courses, and therefore we, we should check for HDV RNA. And regarding RNA testing, there is also a big issue regarding the, the quality of the assays. In five, six, seven years ago, there have been many, many in-house assays which were not good in sensitivity. They uh, missed some of the HDV uh, subgenotypes, uh, but this time is over. I think the, the quality of the HDV RNA assays in most settings has dramatically improved. Either they have the labs are using commercial assays with high sensitivity, or even some in-house assays have dramatically improved. So I can say that uh, for most European countries, we can give the statement that HDV RNA testing is reliable, that all HDV genotypes should be uh, detected. And uh, again, in 95% of cases, we can trust these RNA testing. And then I think we have to do our liver or our hepatology homework. We have every Delta patient, as any other liver patient, needs to be graded for the disease activity and staged for the stage of liver disease which includes liver enzymes, which includes, um, uh, in my view, uh, liver elastography. Uh, and then the big question is, and that would be also my question to Chihan, do we still biopsy all patients? And uh, uh, unless the patient shows decompensated liver cirrhosis, I still biopsy my Delta patients for two reasons. First of all, all the non-invasive markers are not that well established for Delta as compared to other liver diseases. But the second thing is that in Delta, there are, in some cases, you may see autoimmune phenomena. And uh, Delta may be associated with some level of uh, autoimmune hepatitis. And in this case, this information from the biopsy is helping me, for example, in the question to start interferon, yes or no, And therefore, I still do this. I know that this is not supported by every colleague in the field, but I'm still biopsying all my patients. Gian, is the same for you? I mean, yes, but it is in terms of 
many patients are within a protocol and therefore it's not a direct measure what I do. But if I would be a practicing physician without academic interest, I probably would not do liver biopsy that many. Your reasoning of autoimmune hepatitis is a real one, but I have the possibility to start interferon if I were to start interferon and if I see an issue with ALT elevation and still can reassess the patient on treatment autoimmune hepatitis. I think that's an interesting topic, and that would be something for a workshop where we would have 10 hepatologists in one room. We probably would have 15 opinions on this issue, but certainly we will uh, discuss this further on. One last point on hepatitis B, so let's say the underlying hepatitis B virus infection. Obviously, the far majority of our patients are E antigen negative, but not all. 10%, 15% are still E antigen positive. Uh, in your case, do you, let's say, perform the anti-hepatitis B serology, quantitative S? Do you, obviously, HPV DNA? And then the final question is, do you treat your Delta patients for hepatitis B always? So do you give NUCs like tenofovir and tecavir, tenofovir or not? So what do you do with the hepatitis B in Delta-infected patients? I mean... Currently, I don't do what I normally would do, but because of the many potential studies and so on. But if I would use interferons, if I had the only option would have been interferon, I would start with interferon without thinking of nucleoset analogs. And once I see that the interferon is not responding to treatment, I mean, the patient is not responding to interferon treatment, I would then consider starting nucleoset analog and then on a long-term basis. And this is even if the patient is not HPV DNA positive, or let's say has HPV DNA in high titrips. Because I still think if you give nucleosidinal analogs for long periods, such as four years, five years, six years, you may have the indirect effect on quantity, on surface antigen levels, which may, at the end, have some benefit also for the Delta patient. Of course, if I have a patient who has high HPV DNA, and then it's obvious. I just have seen a patient with Delta hepatitis, which I, who is a physician himself, who came up with an ALT of 2000, and he was very afraid. And we checked, he was HDVNA negative. I don't know if it's because of the sensitivity of the SA or other reason, but he had very high HPV DNA. And we start the nucleoside analog, and he's fine now. Everything has improved. So a dynamic shift of the virus is rarely is rare, but can occur. I strongly support this. Physicians treating Delta should not forget B. I think that's very important. The second point is that uh, the HPV may contribute to liver disease. The third point is really the, the long-term effects of nukes on S-antigen, quantitative S-antigen, let's say that's, again, another big topic. But uh, in this context, I don't know what, what other people are doing, but in this context, I prefer tenofovir over entecavir when treating my patients. Not uh, because this is largely supported in, by randomized trials, but at least the evidence that tenofovir may induce, to some extent, interferon lambda, and then I think that this lambda may have beneficial effects 
on the underlying hepatitis viruses. This is something that we, we frequently do here. And we have seen the data, particularly from Asian patients, that uh, in B mono-infected patients, tenofovir may be associated with a slightly reduced risk for or remaining risk for liver cancer. Therefore, we prefer tenofovir, but this is not done in all countries. Uh, and tecavir should also be fine, but I prefer tenofovir. Okay, I learned something. Thank you very much to Dr. Wiedemeyer and Dr. Yerdeiden, and thank you to our listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the full Don't Delay with Delta program on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the link in the show notes for this episode. And please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you.